Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Father, thank you for these, these friends of mine. Thank you that you have called us together to be a church, a community of faith, a group of people that are pursuing and seeking you through your son. Father, I pray that today you give us confidence, that you give us boldness in the reality of his appearance in the world, his, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection, and his ascension to be with you, that he was before all things and he will, um, will live eternally. And because of him, we get to do so as well. Father, would you give us a sense of the new life and the eternal life that we have even now, and might that be a permanent marker that separates what was before from what is now, what is today in our lives, that we were, that the old has passed away, the new has come, that we are a new creation, Father, that we, that we can walk in him. Father, we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, We're going to be spending quite a bit of time in that passage today, and as we do, um, we're really in this series called Growing Oaks. It's talking about what does it mean to be a fully engaged member of this local community of faith? How is it that that we are going to live out our discipleship, that we're going to try to to raise up disciples within our city, that we're going to try to reach people and, and help them to grow towards maturity, to find a deep, meaningful life here. And so we've been pouring ourselves into this over the last few weeks, and Easter is a huge part of that. And we talked about the beauty of the fact that Christ has come to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we get to proclaim God's goodness in the world, and that is a huge aspect of who we are. And so as we're pressing into this series, uh, we're going to be looking at Colossians 2. We really, uh, and really we'll, we'll cover about the first 15 verses of that section. Uh, how many of you like comedy movies? Most of us need more comic relief in our life uh, with the heaviness and the weight of all the things that go. You know, one of the, the common comic uh, elements that shows up that really you can go back and you just look through kind of film history and this one com- comedic element shows up over and over and it's that it's when an adult it gets either or like an adult gets kept trapped in a kid's body or a kid gets trapped in an adult's body or, or somehow things get reversed. Can you think of some movies like that? Um, anyone know Freaky Friday? Big, uh, I think Jennifer Garner was in one like this. It's a little more recent, uh, you know, trying to move out of my time zone and to connect with some of you younger folks. I don't know the name of that one. Uh, but, I, but, but you see this thing that shows up over and over in film. You even see it sometimes in more dramatic movies like, uh, like Forrest Gump, where this childlike creature even grows up into adulthood. But what you have in this, the, why these movies are funny and why they get our attention is because what should be isn't reality that there's something that's out of place, there's something that seems unnatural or surprising or out of the ordinary, that this kid would be trapped in an adult's body or an adult would be stuck in a little kid's body, everything's out of whack, right? 
Because, and why is it funny? Because we understand there's a natural progression to the universe. There's a natural way in which things are supposed to progress. We're supposed to move from infancy through childhood, through the teenage years into adulthood. And it's funny when things don't work out the way they're supposed to, right? Do you know it's true spiritually as well, that there's a natural progression that's supposed to happen? In fact, if you go back to Colossians 1, Colossians 1.28 says, him we proclaim, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There's supposed to be this growth process that takes place elsewhere in the Bible. In fact, it says, though by this time, it says you've become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be hearers, You need someone still to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have, by the powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Says you're, some of you are not able to eat real food yet. You're still on mother's milk. You're still on the stuff of infancy. And by now you should be growing up and eating the meat of the word. You should be digesting a, a two inch thick ribeye and you're still stuck on the bottle. And so there's this problem that's there that you didn't progress or grow spiritually as you ought to. Friends, do you feel like you're growing towards spiritual maturity? Because when I look at the church landscape in America, one of the things I see is that the American church has been fairly focused on making converts and fans of Jesus, but not making disciples and followers of Jesus. We've, we've struggled to help people move toward maturity in their faith. And so the church in America has tended to remain shallow. And so as we look at this verse and we look at Colossians 2, look at me at verses 6 and 7. This is therefore, and, and really this is kind of the theme of our series, these verses. And so we'd ask you to maybe even consider memorizing and put these to memory, put them uh, to, in your heart to reflect on later and to meditate on and to think about and to really shape your mind as we walk through this series called Growing Oaks. But it says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. There's this idea of, of growth that's here. He talks about being rooted, that like a tree that's, uh, that, that's, that's in a place that's drawing nourishment and refreshment and nutrients so that it can grow up, uh, that you're rooted in something that's life-giving, that you're built up. Now, Paul, uh, you know, as a writer, it's a little bit offensive that he mixes metaphors here, but the idea still applies. He goes to a building metaphor that you're being built up. There's something that started as a foundation that the building is beginning to emerge and to grow and to be built up and established in the faith. So there's this strengthening, this foundationing uh, thing that's happening here is, as Paul is talking. And so he, he talks about what it means to, uh, to grow up in him and pushes us kind of in this direction of, of our own spiritual growth. Now, as you think about this, uh, this idea of rootedness, I think is an, an important one. Any of you live in Western Oklahoma, West Texas, somewhere further west than there and know what tumbleweeds look like? You know, the, the thing about a tumbleweed is a tumbleweed has a single root. 
And it's a very, it's a very short little root that just sticks down to the topsoil. And so it, it grows up rather quickly, but it doesn't last very long because as soon as the winds come, uh, because there's no depth to it, because there's no strength to it, because there's no breadth to it, the winds blow it and it just begins to blow away and it begins to tumble off into, uh, across the highways of Western United States. And so if you've been out there and you've seen them, you know there's not a whole lot of life, there's not a whole lot of strength. Uh, they, they always just look like a dead ball of, a dead ball of weeds rolling across, uh, rolling across an empty field. But oaks are different, aren't they? See, oaks, oaks grow much more slowly but they also grow with a lot more strength and stability to them. They've got the ability to withstand storms. They've got the ability to flourish throughout decades. And so there's a strength to an oak. If you've ever done any construction work or yard work in, in Oklahoma or any of these surrounding areas, one of the things you know about a tree is they, they tend to say that the root system of a tree tends to match the branch system of the trees. And so what's underneath the surface of the ground is really as big as what's above the surface of the ground. So if you're going to dig and, and, and do some construction or if you're going to do some yard work, they always tell you, look at the branches and don't dig underneath those. Be sure you start outside the branches because what's underneath the surface is every bit as, as broad as what's above the surface. And I think that's important. There's a proportional connection between what you can see above the ground and what you see or above the surface and what you see beneath the surface. You know, the same is true spiritually. That, our, that, that what you see flourishing about the beauty and the breadth and the goodness of our lives is very much in proportion to what the strength of that which is under the surface of our lives it provides nourishment and renewal and strength for us. And so the depth and breadth of your roots spiritually also determine the beauty and the reach of your life. Can I tell you where this starts? If you look at verse six, it says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Jesus was a person from history. It's why we sing sometimes Jesus of Nazareth because he was a human being who walked here on the planet and, and was very much a human being just like you and I, except without sin. He, 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 was, he was fully human as we are, and yet he was also fully God. And so there's two titles here, though. It talks about Jesus the person, and it says Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, it's important for us to understand what both those two terms mean. Let's start with Christ. When it calls Jesus Christ, it's a title that means Messiah or anointed one. It's talking about the one that was anointed to be our savior or our rescuer, the one that God sent down with the, with the anointing or the calling to go and rescue people. And so then you th see that word Christ, that really is what it's talking about. And so when we receive Jesus as Christ, we're receiving Jesus as our rescuer, our savior sent by God for us. But you notice it says Christ Jesus, our Lord, when it talks about Lord, what is it he's talking about? He's talking about our ruler, our king, <clears throat> our boss. And so whenever you think about receiving Christ, uh, Christ is not just something that is, we're moving into a religious uh, circle, but ultimately we're coming to a person named Jesus and saying, I'm receiving this person or accepting and embracing this person as my personal savior sent by God for me but also my personal Lord sent by God to rule me, to direct my life, to guide me. And so whenever we think about, <clears throat> about what it means for us to be followers of Christ, we're saying we want him to be both our savior and our Lord. And you don't have one without the other. You take him as both or neither. 
And so whenever we come to Christ, we come accepting him. You know the book of Acts, which really talks about the beginning of the church, the word Savior is mentioned two times. The word Lord is used 92 times. There's something about the lordship of Christ in our life that we need to receive and embrace and understand that this is meant to shape our life. As you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. We talk about walking in him. It's talking about our daily practice of life, the, just the means in which we're going throughout the day-to-day stuff that we do. As we go about the day-to-day uh, practice of life, we're supposed to do it in union with Christ connected to him, understanding that he is both our savior and our Lord, understanding that we're to, we're to mirror his beliefs and his lifestyle. And those things are incorporated into our life. That's what it means to walk in him. And it really is referring to, uh, to, to everything in our, in our day-to-day life that's supposed to be conformed to look like Jesus. So how does this really, or what does this have to do with the church? In this series, we're talking about what is, we, what is it we're trying to do as a church. Well, part of it is we're trying to help people understand what it means to walk in him as Savior and as Lord. And so that's ultimately what we're about. But, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was in our small group, and we were looking at this verse as we kind of processed one of the other sermons in the series. And as we did, one of the guys in our small group said, pointed out the phrase, you know, but it says, just as you were taught. And we got to talking about that idea and it got me thinking. And as I was exploring all this, I just this passage really just jumps out at us. And one of the things you see in the midst of this passage is that, that Christianity is not something that you dream up on your own or you invent. Christ is not something that, that any of us would have come up with on our own, but it's something ultimately that we receive. It's something that is taught to us. It's something that is instructed and we embrace and then we, and then we envelop into the rest of our lives. God made himself known to us. God revealed himself to us. God came to us at first in his word and through the prophets, but then through the person of his son. He made himself known and we received from him. And he gave us the church as a guide to teach us about who he is. And so the church really is God's gift to us to help us to grow, to equip us, to train us, to, uh, to, to deepen and enrich our lives and to establish our faith and help us understand who God is and what, it's, what it looks like to walk in him. So let's go back to Colossians 2, chapter, uh, verse one. Just go back just a couple verses. Here we're gonna see Paul's love for the church and how the church intersects with this idea that when we're growing up to maturity in him, it's not something we do as a solo artist, but it's something we do as a group project. It's something that we do together. And so as you go to 2.1, Paul says, for I want you to know how great a struggle the word struggle there is, is, is from the word we get agony from. He's like, I agonize over this for you because I care so much about you. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face. So Paul's saying, I love the church. I love these little pockets of people. And he names these little places. And the reason he does that is he knows there's little pockets of people called local churches that are popping up all over the place. And Paul says, man, I love that church and the one over there and the one in that city and the one in this neighborhood and the one in that other place over there. And I love them so much. And I'm, I, everything I do is to help them because, I, because God loves the church and I love the church. And he says that their hearts, in verse two, that the hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, 
to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What does it mean that you were taught? It meant that somehow as a part of the church that you were deepened and enriched. And in this one little verse, in verse two, do you know there's five things that, I, that, that are pretty easy to spot here that Paul says, these are the things that the church ought to give you. So can, I just, can we just walk through what church community gives us? First, it gives us encouragement. Paul says that your hearts are encouraged by being together. And then he says that there's a loving community. And so in verse two, he says that you are being knit together in love. I mean, what does it mean for us to be knit together? It means that somehow you're interwoven, that you're no longer independent, but you're interdependent. That there's a connection between you and it's love that binds you, but you're bound together as one unit, as a community of faith that's knit together in love. And he goes on and says that you have full assurance. Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So he talks about that you have full assurance. He's saying that you have, you've got this deep faith that's not doubting, but that's confident. And so you've got full assurance or faith. You also have knowledge, understanding, wisdom. He uses these words that are all kind of synonyms or, or kind of different nuances of the same idea, but that you've got this kind of comprehension of who it is that God is and all that Jesus means for us. But you notice it also says that you have an understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. That's transcendence. That somehow there's a knowledge that goes beyond us. When he talks about mystery, he's saying this isn't just a knowledge that you can grope around or study really hard and figure out on your own, but there's a knowledge from outside of your experience. There's a mysterious knowledge that's come to you because God, who is the sovereign creator over all things and ruler over all things, has made himself known. And he's revealed himself in a way that you understand more about the universe than you could ever discern on your own out of your own knowledge or wisdom. So man, it's a beautiful picture of what the church ought to be. We ought to be a place where we are constantly finding encouragement, love, faith, knowledge, transcendence. Can I give you a sixth thing that we're supposed to be that we see really in the next verse? It's protect, that the church ought to be for us. The church also for us ought to be protection. Verses four and five. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That no one may delude you. Deluding is to make you believe that something that's not true is true. That you somehow would be deceived. You'd be, you'd be turned or, or led astray to embrace something that's not a truth and call it truth. That you take something that's not good and you would put good as a label across it. That somehow you would be de uh, deceived by those things. And Paul doesn't want you to get derailed by wrongheaded thinking, and he put us together in the church to protect us from that kind of, those kinds of arguments that might lead us astray. And can I tell you just in my own personal life as I interact with people, I see this all the time. I, I, I counsel with you, uh, with some of you about your children. I counsel with some of you about your spouses that begin to entertain other ideas. They begin to depart from Christ. They begin to wander from the truth. They begin to stop talking about Jesus and start talking about all these other thinkers or philosophers or ideas that were out there. And in the midst of those contrary ideas, they begin to wander 
from Jesus. No longer were they walking in him, but they were isolated from him. They were isolated from his people. And this is the pattern it always has, that they begin to internally entertain other ideas, and then they begin to slowly distance themselves from the church and from the community of faith. And in doing so, they're distancing themselves both from Christ, but from his people. And they do that because they're moving out from the protection that God gave us. Do you know Hebrews 13 says that God gave the church to, be, uh, to keep watch over your souls. And that's not something we take lightly, but there's eternal consequences at stake. Acts, it says that, uh, Paul says that God gave overseers and gave the church in order that, uh, because wolves are gonna come in and deceive people and drag them away from the truth. And it says even amongst the people of God, wolves are gonna emerge from within that are gonna depart from the truth and drag people away with them. There's this dangerous thing that happens within the life of uh, the spiritual life that we have a union with Christ that we're meant to grow up to maturity in him. But we also have a fleshly side that sometimes can depart from the truth and be dragged away. And so the church is here to protect us, to try to keep us safe, to try to keep us from being derailed and moving off in an unhealthy direction. You notice what he says in verse five. There's these two phrases he used. He says, I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. When he says good order, it could be good discipline. These are actually both military terms. These are terms that are, uh, they're an army arrayed for battle. When he says it's good discipline, he really is talking about a line of soldiers drawn up for battle. And so there's a, there's a sense in which, man, we are arrayed and we're poised and we're ready and we're positioned for the battle. And so he's rejoicing that they're ready to face this battle. And he says, your firmness, he's talking about their stability, that there's a solidity and a strength to their preparation as they enter into this battle. Now, what's the battle that they are prepared for that Paul says we need to be ready for as well? What kind of attacks was he warning them against? Let's skip down to verse eight. Verse eight, Paul's gonna continue this uh, kind of this, this tack or this line of reasoning. And he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive. Don't be a POW is, is really the idea and what he's trying to get us to understand that there's a danger that we could be a spiritual POW, that the, the word there is really meant for, like, uh, for, for a soldier dragging off booty after a war, that they've come in and they've plundered an area and they're taking off whatever it is they want to or, or, or dragging off slaves or uh, victims after conquering them. And he's saying, don't be taken captive. It's a command. See to it that no one takes you captive and drags you off to some other idea. He's warning us of a danger. Now, what's this enemy he's so concerned about? Because we, we tend to think of em en enemies, I about said that all backwards, imminent enemies. Uh, you know, sometimes that happens. Sometimes you get your words all mixed up. Uh, I'm gonna start rapping in a minute. Uh, but if you think of your imminent enemies, no, your enemies, you tend to think of physical attacks and things that are gonna happen. But what is it he's, he's saying here that he's warning them about? He says, don't be taken captive by philosophy, by empty, deceptive ideas, by human traditions, by, um, by elemental ideas of the world. And it's all the realm of the mind, isn't it? When he talks about philosophy, he's talking about the love of wisdom. Uh, and, and you hear that and you think, man, who would be against the love of wisdom? Wisdom's a good thing, right? 
But he's talking about human wisdom, wisdom that's not according to Christ, wisdom that's actually contrary to Christ, wisdom that's hostile to Christ. And so he says, beware of the love of human wisdom because it's ultimately empty deceit, it's deception, it's empty promises, it's a bait and switch. It's gonna promise you something and dangle a carrot and pull it away before you get there because it's not gonna deliver on what it says to you it's going to deliver. It's a fraud, it's a trick, it's a card up the sleeve, however you wanna say it. It's something that's not going to give you the thing that it promises and it's gonna operate in a deceptive kind of a way. Some of human tradition, it's, it's something that's based just out of humanity. This is really what he's getting at. The whole idea is that, that it's humans seeking wisdom on their own apart from Christ, apart from the revelation of God. And us groping about in the darkness is never gonna lead us to light. He talks about human tradition. One guy, uh, Donald Barnhouse was telling a story of when he was a kid and his, he talked about what, and he used this as an example of, of what human tradition really is. He said he and his buddies were in, a, in the city and they were on a street corner and they kind of decided to play a little game and they started looking up into the sky and one of them goes, hey, do you see that? And the other goes, yeah, what is that? And they just began to look there and slowly as people were hustling through the city, they all stopped and started looking up too. And so now there's like 10 or 12 people looking up, standing on the corner, looking up at the sky and they're all pointing at stuff and they slipped back to the other side of the street and just began to watch and see what would happen. And they said for 20 minutes, people stand there and they all just look around like this and other people join them. And after a while, some people get bored and they'd move on, but other people just come and they'd stand there. And said, everyone just kept looking up at the nothingness of the sky and pointing like, what are we supposed to see up there? And they didn't know what it was. Uh, And they just laughed at this entire scenario that there was a group of people running after this, that established this little tradition of seeking something that really wasn't there and continuing to go down that path. It talks about elementary spirits of the world. It could be elemental principles. It's a little confusing what this is. Some people think it's more like the actual spirits of the spiritual realm. Other think, people think it's just more kind of the basic ideas of the world. And the idea though in general is kind of like going from grad school to grade school that you've progressed to this point and you go backwards and start trying to figure out the basics of life because you're no longer trusting that which you have learned. But you know what the ultimate, the ultimate issue here is, is really in the last phrase of that sentence? When he says that you are seeking or, or taken captive by all these things that are not according to Christ. That, that you're seeking human tradition or philosophy. You're seeking all these ideas not according to Christ. The idea there is that they're actually hostile to Christ. You see, error does not dress itself up as, as a clown or foolishness. Error always dresses itself up as wisdom, as something that's inviting, something that's appealing. That's why, that's why we're enticed by it. That's why we're deceived by it because it promises us something good. You know, at that time, when you think about philosophy, everything that had to do with God, man, the universe, the way of the world, the way in which we understand that we are supposed to live was really under this big, broad umbrella of philosophy. And so when, they thought, when he talks about philosophy, he's really talking about all human reasoning. And the idea there, when he talks about human philosophy or wisdom of men, he's talking about just man trying to find their own way in the universe and find the answers to the big questions of life. Man, creation, dignity of humanity, uh, uh, kind of uh, sin, uh, sin and nature of evil, morality, purpose, love of, of truth and beauty, um, the ultimate end and purpose of our existence. All those big questions of life fit under that umbrella of philosophy. And what 
Paul's warning against is if you try to discern all the answers to the big questions of life on your own, you're gonna end up in a deceptive place. You're gonna end up in a place where um, you ultimately are not, do not find the fulfillment you're looking for. Man can't begin with himself and end up with ultimate reality. Oz Guinness described it this way. He said, it's like a, a man stuck in a, in a round room with no windows and no doors, groping about in the darkness, hoping to find some light. That, 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 that's ultimately the way we start. When you start with ourself and we don't start with God in order to understanding the meaning of the universe, uh, that's the picture that we ought to have. And that's, what, that's the picture that Paul's warning us against. It says, ultimately, we need to begin with Christ. And here's what's fascinating to me. When you think about our world, the one thing you're not supposed to do in our world is claim ultimate authority. Paul polarizes all thought, all human thought. He says there's two ways to approach the universe. You can approach it on your own or you can start with God. And Paul says the only right way is to start with Christ, to understand who God is because it's the only way in which will lead, that will lead us to ultimate truth. And it's interesting, when you look at the Bible, it begins in the beginning and you get to Revelation and it says forever and forever. That, that, that it starts with something that was before we were here and goes to something that before the creation as we know it exists or, or that, that goes beyond the creation as we know it. That, that somehow God preexisted us and somehow he's gonna help us to live forever and ever. And so when you go to the scriptures, you look at that and ultimately God has revealed himself to us in a way that ought to shape everything that we do. And so when you think about our conversion and our, our coming to Christ, there's all these places in scripture where it talks about kind of this radical point in time where things changed. You were in the darkness and now you're in the light. You were dead and now you're alive. The old has passed away, the new has come. There's this constant place where it talks about when you understand Christ and God makes his known, it kind of opens the eyes of your heart that you see who he is, that it ought to be this kind of line in the sand moment where everything else gets redefined. And so when you come to know Christ, what it means is that our morality, our worship, our authority, our, 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 our loyalty, our justice, our purpose, our ultimate end is different than it was before because we know him, Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And so that changes us and all of that's determined by Christ. So here's what's, what's fascinating to me when you think about this, and we're gonna talk some more about this next week. There are, uh, in every generation, there's a new zeitgeist. There's a new kind of spirit of the age. There's a new way of approaching life. And in many ways, it's the same thing that takes on new dressing and appears a little bit differently. But every, every generation, we have to fight our own battles. We have to come into this thing and we have to have good order and discipline and prepare ourselves for battle in order to engage the world that, that, that we encounter. And the beauty of what Christ has done in the church is he puts these little pockets of people and says, you go and I'm gonna send my spirit to be with you and I'm gonna give you my word as a guide and you discern your times and you with, uh, with great wisdom understand the, the world in which you live so that you know how to live and honor me in the midst of the day in which I've placed you. And so the church doesn't always look exactly the same, even though our truths are the same and our God is the same and our faith is the same and grace is the same and all those things done. There's a fluidity to the church that I think is a beautiful thing that God sends us and says, in your time and in your place, you figure out the context of the city in which you live and then you discern 
How is it that we're to honor Jesus and glorify him to the greatest of our ability within our day? And that's part of the beauty and the wisdom and the genius of what Jesus created in the church. It is that we, we don't just take ideas and simply recite truths, although some of those truths guide us. And they do tell us and set boundaries of don't go across this line because we know that leads us in error. And so there are things that the churches that have emerged in the life of the church over 2,000 years, that there's certain places that we have that we know these are doctrines that we hold dear, that we will not violate because in the past, the church and the, the spirit of God through the word and through his church has discerned that these things will lead us astray from Christ. And so we set boundaries on those things and we stay within those boundaries. But within that, you know, we look to discern our times and say, here's what it looks like for us to exalt Christ in our day. Next week, we're gonna talk some about, uh, we're, we're, we've got a guest speaker that's coming in and we've talked to you guys about this. And one of the reasons we're doing this is it's a guy who really engages our culture well. And so one of the things for us as a church that we wanna be about is we wanna understand our times as best we can because we know that our, our world influences us. And so we wanna be wise in the way in which we live. But we also wanna bring those things under the truth of the scriptures so that we can trust the scriptures as they guide us in the midst of discerning our times. We don't wanna be foolish and think that we're not gonna be influenced by the ideas around us. The history of the church, but also the warnings of scripture tell us that we, we are at risk. It says, do not be taken captive by the ideas that permeate our culture that are contrary to Christ. And so we want to be discerning about those things and we wanna come and trust him. So ultimately, where do we go? Let's look at verse nine. Because one of the things I wanna encourage you in and one of the things that, that Paul encourages you in is, friends, we don't have to be fearful. We don't have to be reactionary. We don't have to be trepidatious about these things. We have Christ who's victorious. So we can have confidence. We can have boldness. We can also have humility to enter into in, conversations um, with our world and with those around us. Verse nine. May I, can I just tell you this as I read? I want you to notice every time it references Christ. In this passage, it's amazing how many times it talks about being in him or Christ or the Lord or something that references Jesus. It tells you he's kind of a big deal, okay? Look at verse nine. For in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. For you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through the faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And do you see all that Christ has done? This really is, this is the gospel. It gives you the big picture of all that Jesus has done for us. And in that world, it was unheard of that God would communicate directly with people. God was considered to be something that was out there and we were down here. And so there's not this kind of direct connection that was taking place. And yet, whenever Paul begins to address the empty philosophies and ideas of their world, he begins with Christ and his appearance in the world. He says, for in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Christ 
was God in the flesh. The fullness of deity, meaning he was fully God, but he dwelt in the flesh as fully human. He was one of us. The way in which God made himself known in the clearest, most visible way is he became one of us. He sent his son to become one of us in the incarnation. He was the son of God, born of a woman. He showed us what God was like and how the world was supposed to work. And so in the midst of understanding the world, we start with who God himself was. And it says in not just the fullness of deity dwelled bodily in Jesus, it says you have been filled in him. Friends, this is the mystery that we have to understand as Christians is somehow we've been filled by Christ. That somehow we've been, we, we, we are partakers of the divine nature, that we have a connection with God that's different because of Jesus. That somehow our union in Christ gives us a participation with deity in a way that's unique and that's different from anything else. And so it starts, Paul says, as you're gonna combat these ideas, you start with God, but start with God in the flesh, the clearest representation of God we've ever seen, which is Jesus. And you start with your connection and union with him. And you hold that. And so what he's saying is without Christ, we would be forever incomplete and in the dark. But in Christ, we are full and we've been transferred into the light. The fullness of deity reside in him and he transferred that to us. Christ, it says, is the head, meaning he's the source. He's the, he has primacy over all creation. He's, he's above everything in the universe. And so there's nothing that answers, or nothing and no one that answers to Christ, but all answers to him. And in him, it says, we have complete acceptance, complete forgiveness, complete, uh, complete embrace of God because we've been received through him. It says, you were dead in your transgressions. Uh, do you know what the meaning of dead is? Dead means dead. Like that, that's the high-tech answer there. Dead means you were somehow spiritually dead, meaning there's no life, meaning no amount of reasoning, no amount of arguments, no amount of uh, anything was going to, uh, can, can make a dead man come to life. But in Christ, you've been made alive in him. It's great we're looking at this the week after Easter, right? Because it's the cross that earned our acceptance and it's the resurrection that proved his power. And what Paul says is, all of that power is yours. And it applies to you, having been buried with him in baptism. We're somehow also connected to him in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So when we were buried with Christ in baptism, like Christ was buried, we were raised to walk in new life as Christ was raised in the resurrection. Verse 10, it says, if if he walked and lived in the fullness of life, you too, he was the head over all rule and authority. So he, he does not fear any argument. There's nothing he has to worry about here in this world. Friends, if the incarnation is true, you don't need to fear any person. If the resurrection is true, we don't need to cower before anyone. For we've been raised with Christ. If Easter is true, we don't need to have any fear at all. The power that energized Christ energizes us and gives us new life. When he talks about the certificate of debt, he's talking about a mountain of debt that you could never pay off. Any of you ever owed a bill collector and realized how consistently they get those letters in the mail? Like they don't, they don't miss reminding you. Any of you had to answer the phone call when you owed something and just know that, man, that phone rings at dinner time, 
and they're looking to collect the bill because you owe a debt and you can't pay it. So you look at the caller ID and you don't answer the phone and just the pressure and the weight of that. What he's talking about is a certificate of debt that we all had a mountain of debt caused by our sin that we could never pay. And because of, because of that, that mountain that was there, and they, they had a record against us and they had an official acknowledged autograph. Really what he's talking about is something that I signed saying, yes, I owe this amount of money and I cannot pay it. So there's a certificate of my indebtedness that I can never pay off. What he's saying is Jesus took that and nailed it to the cross. He ripped it up. He deleted the file. He removed your name from the account. And he said, you are free and clear forever because I paid for it all. And, and there's no longer any debt to be paid. Christ wiped it clean, paid in full. Nothing hanging over your head anymore. And because of that, notice in verse 15, it says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. God triumphed over every, um, every contrary force to him in the universe through the cross. And he's victorious. So friends, what is it we have to fear? If Christ has conquered all, there's nothing for us to fear. There's no worry for us to have. There's no way for us to cower against any human idea. When someone comes, when, when philosophy comes to Christianity and says, well, you're a bunch of fools that believe in a miracle that couldn't possibly be true. We don't have to fear. He's already conquered over them through the resurrection. The image there is saying that he conquered them and he marched them into the city in shame as those who were cowered under his victory. And he was ruling over them. And we don't have to, we don't have to cower, we don't have to fear. So friends, here in the church, we talk about being a gospel-centered or Christ-centered church. One of the things that, that that means is we start with Jesus. We start with him and what it looks like to trust him and what it looks like to believe in him and to rest in him. And we continue to run to him in all things. But it also means we've got to do some work. We've got to do some work to grow towards maturity. One of my mentors used to say that uh, Christian maturity is uh, maybe more than thinking, but it's never less. That, that we have to wrap our minds around these things so that we can do battle against the, the false ideas of our world and not be held captive, not be, not be taken away as prisoners of, spiritual prisoners of war into these things. And so let me just share with you one thing. One of the things we say when we think about our, uh, kind of our vision for where we wanna be as a church, one of the things we've been saying is we seek to help everyday people wake up to deep, meaningful life in Christ. That's the heart of what we wanna be about. And the reason is because we want you to experience all the things that Colossians 2 is talking about. We want you to experience what it is to walk in him as your savior and your Lord and to experience all the goodness and nourishment um, that, that he provides to us so that your life flourishes and you grow and you have a deep, meaningful life. A couple weeks ago, I shared this slide with you and shared kind of this image of a house plan and said Sundays are our great room. Sundays are, they're, they're kind of the great room that when someone walks in here for the first time, they're almost always gonna walk in here and experience Sunday morning. They're gonna drop the kids off at the nursery. This is gonna be their first taste of Redemption Church. And it's incredibly important because if we don't, if we don't do well in their first experience and their first kind of rolling out of the red carpet, us engaging them and connecting with them, they're probably not gonna go to the other rooms of our house, right? And so just like we invite someone over to our house, the first thing we do is, man, we clean up the great room or the living room, we invite people in, we put some snacks out, we enjoy that, we do the best possible job we can, engaging our new friends as best we can. 
And so Sundays are incredibly important for us as a church, which is why we said we really want everyone to serve on Sundays, whether it's every other week, once a month, what it is. We want every single person who calls us home to serve somewhere on Sundays because Sunday is the great room that's always gonna be people's first taste of who we are as a people. And if they don't have a good experience on Sundays, they're unlikely to jump into these other areas. Look at the next slide. We've got all these other things that ultimately we, we're not just about the, the Sunday experience. We're, we really wanna get people connected to small groups where they're gonna be able to sit down and open the word together and talk about those ideas that they're hearing and the ideas of the world that are, uh, that, that are calling at them and where they're, they're feeling themselves drawn away from, uh, away from the Lord and, and, and where they need to come home and where they need to understand how to apply these things to their life. We want them connected to small groups. We want them connected to, uh, to serve teams where they're learning to wash feet like Jesus did and, and be a servant. We wanna connect them to be trained classes where we're equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. We wanna raise them up as leaders. We wanna teach them how to witness and share with their neighbors. We wanna help them learn how to parent. And so when we think about the deep, meaningful life in Christ, and it takes all of these things for us to discern our times and figure out, I mean, how do I live out, uh, how do I walk with Christ as my Savior and Lord in this day and in this city? So we wanna get them to all those other places. And so we, we are crafting ministries that are built around those. And so as you think about really the mission of us, uh, uh, mission of our church, and th- those are two key aspects that kind of go hand in hand. And we wanna do Sundays really well, and we wanna teach them and preach the word and call them to worship and pray together and teach their kids on Sundays. But that's not all that we're about. We also wanna help them learn to walk with Jesus Monday through Saturday. And so we wanna get them involved in these other ministries where we can equip them and help them, uh, help them discern their times and learn what it is to walk with him. Do you see how that works? And this is, this is kind of where we're headed as a church and what we wanna be. Now, let me end with this. And as we think about it, there's a story that's told about George Whitfield, an old preacher, and um, he was in an area and was preaching and was beginning to draw a big crowd. And there was a Scottish philosopher who was, an atheist, who, David Hume, who began to go out and wanted to go out to hear Whitfield preach. And as he did, someone recognized him and they came to him and said, and said to this philosopher who, who, who was well known for not believing in God, said, I didn't think you believed the gospel. And David Hume said, I, I don't, but he does. And so he was gonna go hear him preach. Friends, we, we may not be able to overturn every philosophical idea in our world. We may not be able to, to do battle against every idea and every human tradition and all those things. But what we wanna be about as a people, we wanna be passionately committed to the gospel enough that people see us and they say, you know what? Those people believe Jesus is real and Jesus saves and Jesus delivers them and will take them home. So let's, let's trust him together. Let me pray for us. Father, would you help us to trust you in all things? Would you help us to trust your son? Father, would you keep us from being taken captive by ideas that would lead us away from the truth? Father, would you, would you raise us up as mature followers of Christ who have deep lives rooted in the truth of the gospel? Would you give us confidence and faith in him, in Jesus? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.